This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his upcoming book, Cool It, The Skeptical Environmentalist Guide to Global Warming, our guest today, Bjorn Lomborg, argues that many of the actions now being considered to stop global warming are often based on emotional rather than strictly scientific assumptions. Rather than starting with the most radical procedures, Lomborg suggests that we should first focus our resources on more immediate concerns such as fighting malaria and HIV-AIDS ensuring and maintaining a safe fresh water supply which can be addressed at a fraction of the cost and save millions of lives within our lifetime. Lumborg, who will be speaking at the Los Angeles Public Library's Allowed series at the Mark Taper Forum on September 24th, is adjunct professor at the Copenhagen Business School and author of the best-selling book, The Skeptical Environmentalist. Bjorn Lumborg, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you very much, Nathan. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. Yeah, very it's good. It's exciting to be on here. Well, we're excited to have you with us. Now, I, I sometimes I ask my guests uh, right when they come on, "What's the weather like? Is is global warming uh, uh, reached the point where you are? Uh, how's the weather in Copenhagen?" Well, the weather is certainly not bad enough here to really worry about climate change. Of course, that would also be incredibly unscientific. Right? Uh-huh. Again, yes. <laughs> uh, people very often talk about you know, uh, the weather in any particular point, but of course, global warming is about a little change all over the world, yes. getting a little worse in general, and that's the problem. That's what we need to tackle, not the individual weather, which probably in Denmark could, could take some improvement. Well, absolutely. <laughs> I was. I, I usually do it with a laugh too. So, oh yeah. <laughs> what's your position on global warming? Can you uh, tie that in a ball for us right now? Well, well, the the very short version is really global warming is real. It's happening, and it is man-made. I think that's incontrovertible. I think the people who try to say, "Oh, it's all natural variation," it's probably got nothing to do with mankind. They don't have very much to stand on. It's not to say that climate hasn't changed. It's not to say that there's also natural variation. Climate will also always vary. But the point is we are actively changing it by burning fossil fuels, and we need to have a conversation about how do we address that problem. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you're suggesting that some folk, even like Al Gore, are uh, taking it to extremes and not looking at the facts that are out there and, and uh, going more on an emotional appeal to people rather than a, a factual appeal. Did I characterize that right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's important to say Al Gore is not lying or anything, but uh-huh. he is certainly selecting his facts, as are many people. I mean, this is a common uh, thing in, in, in many discussions, and not just in climate change or environment, but in many political discussions. You sort of cherry-pick your, uh, your points to make an argument. Uh, let me just show you, uh, take one specific example. Uh, for instance, with climate change, we're going to see increasing heat waves. We're going to see more, uh, more long-lasting, uh, stronger heat waves. That's definitely a point that we need to make, and that's going to be negative. That's basically going to cause more people to die. That everybody focuses on. But you have to be honest and say, of course, when temperatures increase, it will also mean that you will see fewer cold waves. You will see fewer cold deaths. And we need to be honest and say, 
overall global warming will be a problem, but it just doesn't work only to pick out all the bad things that are going to happen and sort of pretend to say there's no other side to this argument. And, of course, the reason why I'm picking this particular example is because it actually turns out that for virtually all places in the world, cold deaths vastly outweigh heat deaths. So it's actually estimated that for the U.S., we're probably going to see an extra 40,000 heat deaths by 2050. Now, that's important, but we are also going to see 160,000 fewer cold deaths, and we need to have both figures. Bjorn, uh, this is Mike, and I want to, just so we're clear about this and where I think some people get just agitated about some of the, 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 what you just said, at least I do a little bit, and that is it seems to give us reason to not be too concerned about global change, global climate change. Mm. It, it, do you feel, I mean, you know what I'm saying? What I'm trying yeah, to say is yeah. it, it's sort of a false sense of security when, when, and it does give people, well, gee, it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be, therefore we don't have to worry as much. And yeah. I don't, how do you impart to people a sense of urgency while you, when, when you talk about sort of the mixed messages of the, uh, the, the data on, on climate change? It's, it's important to say that it is true that this could provide some sort of solace and people could say, oh, and just lean back and not worry about this at all. Yeah. Uh, but the flip side of your, your question, and I, I, I understand it, and in some, some ways I, I very much sympathize with it, is, of course, to say that anything we worry about, we should just scream out at mm-hmm. the top of our lungs. Right. But that's unlikely to make good judgment. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, we really have to make sure that we make good judgment. Mm-hmm. And there's there's really two points in this. One is to say climate change is simply not the only big problem facing the world. Mm. You, you mentioned uh, at the outset, you know, there's HIV, AIDS, malaria, malnutrition, lack of free trade, uh, lack of clean drinking. Well, you know, the list goes on. Mm. We also need to remember that there's a lot of other things we need to fix on this planet. But perhaps more importantly, when you talk about climate change, we have to remember and realize this is a long-term thing. This is a long-term issue. It's not something that we're going to fix within the next electoral cycle. It's not something that we're going to fix uh, by, by 2010 or even 2020. We are in for the long haul. And it's one thing that we need to understand, that we need to bridge differences between political parties, between generations, between continents. We only do that if we keep a level head and if we actually make smart policies instead of just policies that make us feel really good right now and make us all feel very virtuous, but actually end up being very costly and doing very little good. That's my real concern, that we, that we all agitate each other so much that we do something that makes us feel good, right. but at the end of the day, we don't achieve much. So you, you, you would reject the idea of, if I can use the analogy of, uh, if we had a hundred people in a in a rowboat and they they run from one side of the rowboat to the other in order to sort of counteract all this sort of back and forth, this is, it, I guess you would say somewhat of an hysteria about these kinds of things because you're going to end up tipping the boat over eventually. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good that's a good picture, uh, and and I simply want to you know get people to cool it, and of course that's also the title of the book. Yeah. to say you know, get climb down from the rhetoric and start realizing. 
if we're going to fix this problem, and if we're going to fix all the other problems on the planet, we need to start thinking smart about this. And if you'll allow me, I'd just like to say briefly what I think at least is smart when we talk about climate change. Uh, the, The point is, as I mentioned, is this is something where we need to fix this in the long term. I mean, in the next, over the next 50 to 100 years, we'll basically have to stop using fossil fuels. This is not going to happen by me putting up a windmill or you putting on a solar panel on your house or, or us driving a Prius or something. It's all very nice, but it's just simply not going to cut it for two reasons. Partly because fossil fuels are intrinsic to our society. So what we will do is we'll cut a little of the increase. And the second part, and that's by far the most important part, is most of the emissions throughout the 21st century are not going to come from us. It's not going to come from rich Americans or Europeans. It's going to come from developing countries like China and India and all the others who are basically going to say, we want to get rich first. We want to be able to feed our kids and cure them from easily uh, curable infectious diseases, give them an education before we really start worrying about climate change. If that's the case, we have to start thinking differently. It's not about cutting a ton of carbon right now. It's about making it incredibly much cheaper to cut lots of tons of carbon by the middle of the century. And that's about investing in research and development and, non, uh, and non-carbon or low-carbon emitting energy technologies. Right now it costs $20 to cut a ton of carbon dioxide. That means the rich world will do a little to make it feel good and the poor world will do nothing. What I want to make sure is instead of cutting tons right now, which makes us feel good, but has very little effect, I want us to invest in research and development so that that price will go down to, say, $2, in which case our kids and grandkids will love to cut a lot more, and even the poor world will do a lot. We're speaking with uh, Bjorn Lomberg, and the, uh, the book is Cool It, The Skeptical Environmentalist Guide to Global Warming. I, Go ahead, Mike. I just, I, 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 I don't want to, you, you, you you've made a compelling case for sort of a measured response to, to what we're going through. Um, but I, I'm going to go back to one point I was trying to make to you, and that is, when, how do you, how do you convey a sense of urgency? And, and I'll go, I'll go to something I know that you're very concerned about, which is HIV and AIDS and the impact it's having, not only across the world, but certainly, particularly in, in Africa, where tens of millions of people are 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 uh, affected by it and that is that 25 years ago we had a u.s president who didn't mention the word aids in during his presidency at a time when there could have been a lot of good done by and a time where there could have been a lot of research and development done. right it could have been it could have happened and, and certainly would have given the a much higher profile to the disease would have done a lot essentially as a public service public health issue could have raised it to a point where we wouldn't be dealing with 20 or 25 million people in Africa with AIDS. And I guess that's where that sense of urgency that I'm talking about in regard to AIDS would have been helpful and where I think it can be helpful if we frame it correctly in terms of addressing global warming. And, and I, I take your point, but I would, uh, I would, I would slightly disagree with your, with your metaphor, because you're absolutely right. Had we dealt, I should just say, uh, uh, the reason why I'm concerned about HIV, AIDS, and malaria and malnutrition right. is because I run something called the Copenhagen Consensus, where we ask some of the world's top economists to come up with where do we get the most bang for the buck if we want to help the world. And what they tell us is that if you invest a dollar in, for instance, HIV protection, 
uh, prevention, that is basically you know, condoms and information yeah. uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, you will end up doing $40 worth of good. And then they can compare it with a lot of other things where we do immense amounts of good. And also uh, the climate way we do it right now, where they say for every dollar you spend, you probably only do 30 cents worth of good. And that's what I'm trying to attack. Right. We need to have smarter ways. But yes, the question is, for HIV AIDS, it's true that had we acted much sooner, I, and I totally agree, had we done that, it would have been a lot cheaper, simply because if you have more people infected, you'll have more people getting infected. The problem is that's not the situation that we have with climate change, mm. or only very little so. Mm. The main point is that most of what makes us rich, most of what makes this, this, this society that we live in comfortable is the fact that we use fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. And even if we massively invest in trying to get away from that, it's not going to change much over the next 30 years. Let mm. me give you an example. The, inter, uh, the uh, International Energy Agency, the ones that do all the forecasting for all the nations in the world, on energy, uh, they have their standard scenario. Uh, is right now we, we use about 13% of renewables, and that's mainly, you know, globally, that's mainly from water and biomass. Now, in the standard scenario, it'll go up to 14% by 2030. But they also have a scenario where they say, what if the world really took off? What if they really worried? What if they really did something about climate change? The surprising thing is that means that we will go up to 15%. Mm. It will just simply not matter very much. What you're really talking about is, and that's a very used metaphor, right? But it really is a super tanger that we're trying to change. Yeah. And as long as we're trying to change it one ton cut at a time, you're going to have people paying out of their noses to do very, very little. What I want to focus on is instead of saying, let's focus on cutting the cost so that when our kids will want to change over, they'll simply do it because it's cheaper, maybe even because we've made it worthwhile. Um, look, in De look at Denmark, for instance. Uh, obviously, I love to make that example. Uh, we have lots of wind power now. Uh, we put up in the 80s and 90s lots and lots of windmills before they were economically efficient. Uh, it made us all feel good, but it actually turned out that it was a fairly big waste of money. What we've now done is we've had to take them all down and put up efficient wheel mills now. Now, this time it's great because now they actually make money. Now they're actually cheaper than fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. Great. But we shouldn't put up a lot of things that, don't, uh, that are not economically feasible because it means that you have to get people to pay a lot to do very little. What we should have done was to have spent all that money on research and development, make much better windmills, and then put them up when they're efficient. And of course, in that way, we can also get people to, if we could come up with great biofuels and, and second generation, if we could come up with great ways to do solar panels, maybe embed them in, in tarmac or in rooftops or what have you, if we could do that incredibly cheaply, uh, which I would imagine, that I'm, I'm not going to say I can predict which of these many ideas will come to fruition, but some of them will, and that's the point. If we could do that, we would basically have people uh, you know, join in droves, not because they're motivated by wanting to do good at very high cost, but simply because we've made it worth their while. So this is a smart way to say, if you're going to change the world, don't try to do it what, uh, in a way that's going to cost a lot and will do virtually no good. Try to do it in a way that will be cheaper and that will actually, at the end of the day, do much more good. We're speaking with Bjorn Lomborg. The book is Coolit, The Skeptical Environmentalist Guide to Global Warming. And I, 
I guess what I want to say is, uh, how do you measure good, though? Yeah. What 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 you're saying is that in a perfect world we would come up with the right answer, uh, and and not mess around with any wrong answers to a problem, and it, at least in the world that that I'm familiar with, people make mistakes, and and those windmills out there that Denmark had to tear down may may have been you know. Uh, 40 cents of good on every dollar, not too much of a, a good economic return. But in the long run, they might have been $200 worth of good on the dollar because they were the inspiration that moved yeah. things along. They were, they were the, the... The prototype, you know, if yeah, you Yeah, the, the, the fertilizer for the better ideas. Yeah. Does, does that and, make any sense to you at all? Yeah, uh, and, and, and of course we need to have visionaries. I want just to make sure that we try to be as visionary in as many ways as we can, because obviously if you end up spending money on one thing, it means that's money that you can't spend on on other things that you presumably also want to do. I simply want to make sure, of course we need to think smartly and we think to, uh, uh, have to think visionarily, but how do we want the, our energy society to look in 50 years from now? Uh, we should make competitions like the X Prize. you remember that one, for mm-hmm. going first out into space? Yeah. It created a lot of people coming up with some, you know, some pretty weird and, and stupid ideas, but also really great ones. Yeah. And that is the way to get people to come up with smart ideas to new ways of dealing with a problem. But the idea is to say, right now we seem locked into the idea of doing Kyoto or something more than Kyoto, which is basically cut emissions right now. The problem with that is it costs a lot of money, and it will do very little good. It's not a, you know, the estimates show that it's probably $180 billion a year if everybody lived up to the Kyoto Protocol. And yet the problem is it only postpones global warming by the end of the century by uh, about five years. So it has very little impact and has a very high cost. It's hard to get people enthusiastic about this. So that's why everybody talks about it. But if you actually look at who's <laughs> implemented it, it's virtually no one. Yeah. Germany and England are the only two nations who are really successfully living up to their uh, conditions, and that's only because they already fulfilled them when they signed the agreement, simply because you know, Germany took up East Germany and got a lot of credits from that, and, and uh, England had had uh, Margaret Thatcher uh, uh, deal a blow to the coal miners for entirely different reasons. So the main point here is to say it's just very, very hard. Yep. So we get all fired up, but we yeah. end up doing very little good. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that we all get fired up and end up doing a lot of good. Yeah, so, I, I was just going to say, is there a technology that you would uh, put the money into, put our resources into right now? Or do you think it's at a stage where we need to have more competition and to figure out what that technology would be? It, it's, it, it's important to say that, that uh, for instance, windmills in, on, uh, out in, at sea, which is probably going to be the long-term solution for wind power, mm-hmm. uh, is, is sufficiently far ahead that we probably don't have to subsidize it. That will come online within you know, 5, 10, 15 years. Uh, but it's solar cells in all forms and shapes. Uh, one of the things that seemed to bother me, again, uh, I, I have to say I'm, I'm standing as an outsider, is that it's perhaps too much driven by, by uh, uh, engineers who want to get better uh, solar cells. Uh, but, of course, thinking as an economist, maybe you want 
worse solar cells if they are just incredibly cheap. You want to have solar cells that you can just pave over your entire roof. They don't cost very much. Maybe they don't make as much. But if it means that you could basically do this all over Los Angeles or San Francisco, imagine the impact. Uh, and it's about uh, research and development on, uh, on, uh, on energy conservation. That is basically get a lot more smart energy, get a lot more ventilation systems, all those kinds of things that could have more systematic uh, uh, efforts, efforts possible. And then, of course, it's, it's about second generation and maybe even third generation uh, biofuels. And then it is also very much about you know, uh, fusion. It's also, and I think we need to mention that, fission. How can you, how can you possibly make that happen? And then the big uh, uh, thing that, that possibly could save us virtually instantly if we could find a cheap way uh, to, uh, to, uh, to take out uh, CO2 from power plants, basically uh, carbon capture and put it into the underground. So those are some of the things, and I'm not going to, you know, well, those are, by that's, no means an exhaustive list. Yeah, that, that, that is a massive, I'll get to work. but that's a massive, massive amount of uh, money in, involved in this carbon capture. Yeah. And there's, I, well, there's a, I, I just have one, a couple of quick questions. First of all, you mentioned uh, that would delay global warming, delaying this. And so my my thought is, instead of running towards the cliff, we're we're trotting or walking towards the cliff. And and is there a point at which, it which you see you when you say global warming, is that some sort of doomsday kind of scenario that you're talking about, where sustainability on of, of life on the planet for humans anyway is dramatically impacted? Is that is yeah. what does that mean when you say? Yeah. I, I, and that's also an important part of the book yeah. to go through. Yes. You know, people, uh, and certainly from the press, we've gotten this sort of ap- apocalyptic sense that that you know life conditions are simply going to uh, get out of whack. We won't be able to survive anywhere. Maybe a few breeding pairs, as as, uh, yeah. as one of the uh, uh, sci- uh, chief scientists from the UK said, uh, a, a few breeding pairs in, on Antarctica or something, an ice-free Antarctica. Of course, that's not at all what the UN Climate Panel is telling us uh, that's going to happen within the next century. Climate change is going to be a problem, and it's definitely going to impact negatively uh, uh, life in general on the planet, but we need to keep a perspective, yeah. uh, take food impacts. Uh, we, we're expecting uh, a decline in, in production of 1.4% of the worst models, and that's over a 100-year period. That's still just a one-year delay in the increase in productivity. So, you know, it's, it's a problem, and we need to remember that, but it's not a catastrophe. Okay. Well, we have just simply run out of time, and I, I very much enjoyed uh, our conversation, uh-huh. Bjorn Lomberg. Uh, the, the book is Cool It, uh, the uh, Skeptical Environmentalist Guide to Global Warming. And uh, good luck to you. I, I know you're, as we barely touched on, I know you're very much involved in uh, uh, HIV AIDS. Uh, and you, as you talked about, the diseases that are wiping out millions of people across the world. And uh, continued uh, good luck on all of that. Thank you very much. Yeah. It was a pleasure being here. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals. Weekly Signals.